Yeah, and I thought, although it's a technically complicated procedure because South African doctors, we're not really afraid of anything, that it might be well within the scope of, of what we would be able to do. And it's not that far-fetched idea. It would just be a natural extension of, of the ECMO that was happening upstairs in ICU. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Idi Ekmo, it's Zach Schreiner. We have another fantastic episode today. I have Neville Flock with us. Thanks, Neville, for joining us. Thank you much for having me, Zach. Neville is a rock star from South Africa. He's an emergency medicine registrar, and he is a friend. We have seen each other at different conferences all over the world, and he is doing some fantastic work down in South Africa. And today, we're going to explore kind of a lot of stuff, not just about ECMO, but really about, you know, what does South Africa look like? What does resuscitation look like in South Africa? How does ECMO get used? And then hopefully, Neville, if we can get to this, I'm hoping we can do a little metaphysical philosophy stuff on the disparity. Like, does ECMO even make sense in a country like South Africa? We just got done with doing the episode with the Netherlands where they said ECPR for the entire country. We can we can get to 100% of the country. And one of the feedback was, well, that's great for the first world nations. But what about the rest of us? Does this does ECMO really make sense? And should we even be pushing this when we have all of these other healthcare needs? So Neville, what do you think? Does that sound like a plan? That sounds like a good thing. All right. So tell me, what does medicine look like in South Africa? Medicine in South Africa is, uh, is is quite the beast. It's 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 a very strange phenomenon, and, and it's actually not just one one thing. It's it's difficult to say what medicine in South Africa is. Um, to put it in this perspective, South Africa has got almost the dual or duality in healthcare. So it's got the the state sector, which probably provides healthcare to eighty percent of of the population, eighty to ninety percent of the population. It's quite low resourced and and not well funded. And then we've got a private healthcare sector then, which is very well funded and provides healthcare to the to minority of people. But South Africa has got a quadruple burden of disease, which uh, which makes which makes uh, the patients not few and far between. We've got we've re- really got an excess of patients. And, and if you talk about um, healthcare staffing, then then the doctor patient ratio in South Africa is really not that favourable. Looking at one doctor for every three and a half four thousand patients. Um, and the nursing ratio is probably not far off from that. So, just looking at a healthcare staffing perspective, we we already already had a major disadvantage. And yeah, that's that's one side of it. And then looking at geography, uh, the smaller rural areas also have less healthcare resources than than the biggest, say the bigger cities um, in and around the the bigger towns. So, it's um it's an interesting, very interesting place to practice medicine. So interesting. So now within that, resuscitation has to have varied response as well. Tell me about what that looks like. Yeah. So the classical model of in and out hospital resuscitation is is probably a good place to start. And um, it um, it differs where you are in the country. You might you might get a very good um, in hospital um, resuscitation in some of the private hospitals or maybe even some of the larger public hospitals, but some of the some of the smaller public hospitals over weekends, you know, staffed by one or two doctors, and then I mean it's a it's a small community based hospital, 100, 200 beds, and there's literally only one doctor. So even though if you arrest in hospital, you might not, it might actually not be picked up, and then you're responding to to someone who's already arrested a, a while ago. 
and that's not a that's not an uncommon scenario, especially if you if you're a bit younger than you go through training, then you do get posted as a junior doctor to some of the smaller hospitals. And it's it's not a it's not an infrequent scenario where you rock up to a patient where you get called in the middle of the night and you've actually realized the patient's the patient's demised. Um, not just now, they've actually demised an hour or two ago. So that's that's a smaller hospital. And then out of hospital, that also really varies and, and it really depends on geography. In, in smaller provinces, um, so the whole country is divided up into nine provinces. So Gateng is the smallest province, um, but probably the most populous and probably it's got the most money. So in a, in a place like Gateng, if you arrest, you probably will have a paramedic or EMT paramedic with, within your sign within 10 minutes um, if, if community members don't undertake resuscitation straight away. Um, and then if you look at the a province like the Northern Cape, which is really a large province, vast distances, um, you can sometimes travel hours between, between small little towns. Um, that really becomes a problem then to have some kind of response. And it usually then falls on a community-based response instead of a formal healthcare system. So we've, we've really got all, all sides of, of, of the coin and, um, you know, from from first aiders right through to ALS helicopters with ECMO on board. So, yeah. So I I actually just recently got back from Chile and did an emergency medicine conference down there. That was just fantastic. They were nicest nicest people, um, but it seemed like there's a lot of similarities. Like public system, private hospitals that are just world class. Public system not quite as good, but some of the bigger ones still offer first world medicine. That disparity is there, and you know it's kind of like well. How do you solve that problem? I don't know. Well, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit. But so from your standpoint, the resuscitation in some of these hospitals is is pretty advanced. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, I think there's a lot being said for, for junior doctors managing very complex patients. Um, we we kind of get thrown in the deep end. So I think from a, from a physician perspective, you, you kind of get skilled very quickly with a, with a lot of um, procedures and and you get exposed to to things, intubation, intercostal drain insertion, central line axis. Those are those are really things that are well within the scope of of a junior doctor, and not necessarily a specialist emergency physician. You know, if it if it gets performed well, that's that's a total different different question because sometimes these things do happen without supervision. So it also depends on your on your undergraduate training and and where you, where you spend your internship. Um, but your know, exposure to to these kinds of things and the patient needing those kind of interventions is, is definitely um, it's definitely there and it's definitely part of daily practice. Yeah, also similar to Chile, where very junior doctors are expected to do very advanced things without a lot of supervision. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'll, you know, some of the greatest trauma literature in the world comes out of South Africa because of just the sheer numbers. Yeah, we're, we're very good at trauma. We also sometimes make a joke and say stabbing is a national sport. Uh, and, and 2 a.m. is stab o'clock. So I'm sure that resonates with some, some other parts in the world. Okay, so tell me, how, how did you get, tell me about your involvement in getting ECMO into South Africa and your exposure to it? So I was I was very fortunate to um, straight after being done with all the prerequisites of of um, becoming a physician in South Africa. So I take um, I took a bit of a uh, hiatus from from state practice and I and I dabbled with uh, with private emergency care. So I joined a, the private emergency uh, medicine practice of one of the larger hospitals, um, private hospitals in Gauteng. Um I think at that time it was probably the largest private hospital in South Africa. So quite well resourced, quite well staffed, 
you know, having access to, to most of the subs, subspecialities. But at that stage, they had quite a well-established um, ECMO center. So they were ECMO center already for probably about 10 years at the time I joined. So they, they had access to surgeons and physicians and there was a blood bank on site and you know, advanced coagulation and laboratory and they, they were well on the way. And, and VV ECMO was, was kind of what they did um, in almost on a daily basis. They did between 20 and 40 cases a year. So quite a high volume center for South Africa. And then also post-cardiac surgery, also post-cardiac VA ECMO also taking place, but not as frequently as, as the VV ECMO. So you know, I, I was very lucky to, to then from the emergency department then start chatting to the, to the ECMO team. And um, I, had, I had quite a keen interest because I had no clue what this is. And I just heard and read articles. And um, at that stage, I, I think one of the SMAC conferences, I, start, I, I saw a Lionel doing this thing. And I was like, I was totally blown away. This is like the next frontier. Um, yeah. And I thought, you know, although it's a technically complicated procedure because South African doctors are not really afraid of anything, just by virtue of, of having to do these things, that uh, that it might be well within within the scope of of what we would be able to do, and it's not that far fetched idea. It would just be a natural extension of of the ECMO that was happening upstairs in in ICU. So I started chatting to them. So when they did routine VV ECMOs, so non non emergent cases, I, I would run upstairs and and see how they set up the the circuits and how they prepare for the lines and how they measure. And I slowly got involved that way. Okay, so now in the hospital right now, I read one of your papers and it talked about that caffeine overdose young woman that got put on. Just run me through a case. Like, how does this look in South Africa? Who cannulates? How does how do you get the process started? How does it work? Yeah, so I mean, it will be absolutely dependent on where you are and who runs it. Um, there aren't any hospitals, um, as far as I'm aware, that actually offers ECPR formally, um, and this kind of happened on a semi-ad hoc basis at the hospital I was working at. It depends on who was around, but yeah, we were trained in it and, and we thought we'd choose patients that would do well. Um, so for the caffeine overdose patients, you know, we, we have a relatively well-stocked and well-staffed resuscitation area in the emergency department. Patient comes in and looks, appears to be well, um, although having a um, report of a seizure, she starts having another seizure, looks like status um, epilepticus. She gets subsequently intubated with the propofol infusion, and then she then she started having subsequent cardiac arrest. Short um, short runs of, of um, pulses, VTAC, shocker. She'll probably be fine for a couple of minutes, and then every time she arrests, you know, CPR gets underway. By this time, the second or third time, we started realizing something might be up here. So blood gas showed all kinds of weird electrolyte abnormalities, tried to correct them. Um, but yeah, we just couldn't catch up. So, but this time we already had a healthy, healthy suspicion that there, there might be something else on board, and we might not, might not be able to, to you know, to, to keep her in a in a perfusing rhythm. Uh, so by the third third shock, then the call goes up to the ECMO team. Yeah, what they're busy with, kind of like hi, <laughs> you know, whatever you're doing, um, we've got it. We've got a sickie down here. So not saying you must run, but <laughs> get here quickly. Um, so, yeah, all the usual things would have happened by then. The patient was intubated, um, um, CPR is underway. Um, at that stage, we were trialing a mechanical CPR device, so that's, um, that was quite nice. Uh, it, it really makes it easier for the team. 
although we, we know the literature is or the verdict is still out there, but we, we found it in our setting where you know we have to rotate every two minutes and you've got you've got a, a scarcity of, of personality. It really made a, a huge difference. Um, so yeah, by that time, all the usual things have um, have been done. A lines up, um, multiple other lines up. And we start then prepping the groin area. So then take off the clothes, prep the groin area, and just start getting wires in and confirming wire placement. And then all the um, ECMO or, um, packs and the machine and the circuit, everything would then arrive from theater and ICU. And um, yeah, from there on, fortunately, the cardiothoracic surgeon was around and, and then they'll just take the wires and updilate. So we put in seven French or eight French um, sheets for access initially. And then, yeah, they just change wires and updilate um, as soon as we've confirmed wire position. So, you know, then that gets done by a surgeon. It's it's a bit better if it gets done by the surgeon. They kind of a bit more um, hands-on with it. And then, obviously, in private healthcare, there's a, there's a medical legal uh, responsibility and medical legal risk to it as well, which is kind of uncharted territories. But if we if I see how they responded to some of the private healthcare companies to, to Reboa, I'm sure they wouldn't look too favorably on a on a on a then medical officer you know putting in 28 Frenches in in, in femoral femoral veins so yeah um so ECMO team would consist of basically three people so it'll be the, the cannulator which can then be a surgeon or vascular surgeon or cardiothoracic surgeon um it'll then um, also consist of the um uh, ECMO physician which in that case was a anesthetist intensivist and then also cardiac technologist which is which is someone who's undergone four years of training. Uh, I would probably equate it to a respiratory respiratory therapist in the in the states, but then obviously they they apply the the knowledge to other other things, not just ventilators. So so that would basically be be the ECMO team, and then a theatre sister or scrub nurse just helping with the sets and 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 sterility and access. So basically a small team of four, and then the resuscitation would still be ongoing then with the ED team. So as soon as the ECMO team arrives, then then they take total responsibility for for the ECMO, and then the resuscitation continues. So pretty much as you know it. Yeah, I mean that that sounds like a very reasonable approach, right? You have it's a, like you said, ad hoc. It's 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 when the stars are aligned. Like this is where we're going to be able to do this. From the ER, you guys go all the way up to the placeholder cannulas, and then allow the surgeon to dilate up in a situation where this is really infrequent right yeah i must say the more we started doing it it kind of it was kind of like uh i don't know you just start calling these patients then because then every patient at arrest you'll be like oh maybe you should cannulate this one and then and then it, and it starts becoming difficult because kind of word gets out there to ems so then all of a sudden all the cardiac arrests in town start rolling through the door and I kind of expect the same treatment for for the patients, and then and you really have to keep your wits about it and and um, and start making decisions so that you don't call the ECMO team for every patient. Because I mean they're also busy; they're not just there for for ECMO. They they've got lots of other sick patients to treat, and it takes all the whole story. You just start calculating to get them up to ICU. Probably takes an hour, hour and a half. So it takes a big chunk out of their day and, and significantly significantly increases their workload. So. Yeah, we, we we started looking at um, <clears throat> so we started looking at uh, what other places were doing in the world in terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, but we found it a bit difficult. So later on, we we decided so after after the first so that was a in hospital witnessed arrest um, technically. Um, so we we then kind of 
made the decision that we wouldn't really cannulate any out-of-hospital cardiac arrest because the EMS always, you know, it's always just five minutes or 10 minutes. But if there were obvious signs of life, then we would obviously see if we can, can go about it. We kind of made a, a blanket rule that no, no out-of-hospital cardiac arrest would be cannulated. If we think the patient has a good chance and it's a witnessed in-hospital arrest, yeah, sure, we'll go for it. But, um, you know, we, we didn't think that we were there. We wanted to choose the patients well and not necessarily waste resources. It's, it's quite significant. Um, financial burden and then obviously a nursing burden, doctor burden. So, you know, starting off, and that's the one thing I learned at Paris Rescue is that um, when you start out something like this, is it's just choose your patients well and then just try and convince everybody this thing works. <laughs> and I think the literature is starting to catch up and it is actually showing that that it is actually quite beneficial and helpful. But uh, yeah, so we were very cautious at, as, as in the start as to who we're choosing and why we're choosing them. Also totally reasonable. I mean, and just going back to the Netherlands, I mean, they chose, they chose two different things. One is that they wanted the entire country covered, but they only are going to select a very small population. I mean, they're less than 50 years old is their cutoff. And they, and they calculated out. They're like, well, this is how many cardiac arrests we're going to get per year. This is how much we can hold. Uh, what's the number we got to put at? So it makes sense, especially when you're starting out a program and trying to decide whether this makes financial sense, economic sense, whether your system can handle it. Sounds like you guys are doing similar. Yeah, that's the difficulty with, with the literature is that a lot of people don't take the other determinants into, into account. And I mean, the Netherlands is quite a small country. You can probably fit Netherlands into South Africa multiple times. So, so that's why they're able to, to cover the whole, the whole country. So you know, I, think, I think those things... As soon as you start maturing into, into this and you understand how and why it's applied, then, then you also understand. If you just look at France as well, I mean, ECMO is also not, I mean, they're kind of kind of the leaders in, in, in pre-hospital ECPR, but it's also just Paris, you know, it's not everywhere, in, 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 so it's not a universal coverage. So, so that kind of put my mind at ease that you know, although we're doing it in South Africa in one small hospital, it's the same in other parts of the world as well. I'm sure, I'm sure if you compare it to the US as well, there are centers of excellence, San Diego, Minnesota, um, but it's not it's not universal coverage yet. It's not we're not there yet. Yep. So you've been to Lionel's course. You've you've seen what, how we do it at Reanimate. Uh, what do you guys do differently? What what can you tell us that maybe is a is an advantage in the way you do it, or maybe a, a practice difference? Um, I, I don't know. We kind of model what what is out there and see what works for us and doesn't work for us. We, we we were quite fortunate to have a very well run or tight knit um, team in the in the emergency department. So if you'd ask for something, you know, it would be there within a couple a couple of seconds. Um, we had access to ultrasound. Um, we even had access to fluoroscopy. So the radiology suite was was literally just ten steps down the passage. So that's something that we didn't explore at the time in terms of um, a wire placement. But sometimes the views kind of get it. I'm sure you know. I mean, the views get a bit difficult. With, um, with with transthoracic echo if you want to see your, where your wires are. So I know in, in, in ICU, they would routinely use esophageal, transesophageal echo to see, you know, the, the wire placements. That that would have been probably something that that we probably would have pushed for. And I think with the advent of resuscitative transesophageal echo, that would probably be, become a routine thing in the, in the future. So, yeah, we, we wanted to start doing that, but, um, yeah, we weren't, we weren't there yet. And I, and I had to leave, unfortunately, before, before we could start really developing uh, this thing. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think we've got a big advo- 
maybe the advantage is that we're not spoiled for choice in terms of what we've got equipment. So there's no there's no confusing no confusing your equipment. You kind of have to make um, have to make work with what with what you got. So that's probably that's probably I see it more as an advantage than a, than a disadvantage. So that's great. All right, so let's spend a second. Just, I mean, and this is really kind of up there, but how do you see? You said you kind of struggled with it with looking at Paris and saying, okay, well, Paris only does it and the rest of France doesn't have it and US doesn't have universal coverage in any way, shape or form. Tell me about how that plays out in South Africa. Do you see that? Uh, how do you feel about that disparity? No, it's, it's, it's quite a philosophical question. I think you put it actually, but it, it does beg the question because we started, we had to start reflecting on, on, on why we're doing it and, and for who we're doing it. it. It's great if the patient does very well, but looking at the, the bigger healthcare system, there's, there's quite a lot of need in South Africa. So if you're looking at a global healthcare perspective, there are many other places where, um, where, where money is probably better spent than, than um, uh, in, in CPR. But being, being said that as well, I'll give you some examples of where money can be spent. For example, um, public access defibs. We don't have that universally. So, so my vision would be to have at least a defib in every school, at least, um, and CPR training or basic first aid training for every school child. So as soon as they leave school, you know, there's some kind of um, first aid training. So it's, for me, that is probably, you know, more bang for your buck in, in, in the longer term. You'll, you'll, save much, um, you'll save much more and you'll save many more lives. Um, down the road than, than spending a whole bunch of resources on, on ECPR. So just from a systems perspective, there's lots that we can that we can do and improve. But we don't even have universal cath lab coverage in the country. So if you really want to start talking big bucks, then probably putting up cath labs in, in some smaller hospitals um, or some smaller centers has got a high burden of, um, of, of lifestyle diseases and coronary, coronary artery disease. That's probably money better spent as well. So, but that being said, I don't think it's not something we shouldn't do and we shouldn't attempt. I don't think it's necessarily something that we should spend a lot of money on, but we've got access to it. So if, if it's already there, then not utilizing it for patients that really would do well, it, it will also kind of be a waste. It's not, I don't think technically it's that demanding in, in terms of the learning curve is quite steep, but I don't think it's impossible for the, for the average emergency physician in South Africa. But it will it will take a bit of um, talking to the to the medical funders. It'll probably there's there's going to be a lot of growth pains I think before we can start implementing it universally. But yeah, I, th I think it's I think it's a real possibility in in, in some centres of excellence that they can offer it. And then it'll be interesting to see what what we come up with in terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, and see and see how that plays out. Yeah, I like how you said that. I, I mean, I've struggled with this same question quite a bit, uh, going around and going to different places and talking about eCPR. And I, I think it's very valid. I think there's a lot of a valid argument to say the money should be spent more other places. I also think, though, that the argument that these innovations are necessary and they're going to be expensive at the beginning, but at some point they're not going to be expensive and they're going to be routine and we're going to say, yeah, you're, why don't you have a cath lab throughout South Africa? The only reason that occurred is because back in the day, somebody said, well, why would we do a cath lab when we could treat malaria? So you've got yeah. to have these innovations that are coming down the pipe so that you can, can create systems that are large enough to allow for companies to make this thing cheaper and to allow people to innovate in ways that don't cost so much money. 
So I do feel that there's a benefit even even for the long-term health of the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it just motivates the healthcare system to to really start improving our, our cardiac arrest game, then then so be it. You know, then then if we can just save one extra life per year, then then great. That would be fantastic. Awesome. Uh, anything else, Neville? No, thanks. Um, thanks so much for for having me. It's great chatting with you and great catching up. Oh, it's so great to talk with you and to hear just what South Africa looks like. I mean, I think some of my take homes are that this is a place in the world where emergency physicians have real game, that they have a skill set because they do so much and they have to deal with so many sick patients and they're often left to sort of fend for themselves. And, and, and sometimes those situations are ways or places where innovation happens more quickly than other places. So uh, I can't wait to see what happens in South Africa and see what the next 20 years brings as far as ECMO and cardiac arrest innovations. All right, so there's South Africa. That's what it's like. A little bit about medicine down there, a little bit about ECMO, a little bit about disparity. Couple announcements. Hey, so uh, I don't know if you've heard, Minneapolis, they did the first two cases on their mobile rig. This is huge. This is huge. I can't wait to talk to Dimitri and Jason about this. And actually, with that, Jason Bardos. We are three weeks away from reanimate. Jason Bardos is going to be out here in San Diego. We are sold out. We can't wait for this. You know, Jason, I just, this guy is off the charts smart as far as ECMO management, about setting up programs on how to do this right. And it's going to be all here in San Diego just a few weeks away. We can't wait to see all you that are coming out. And so with that, let's get out of here.